If you're a guest with us this morning or, you've, uh, or you're a member and you've been here for the past few weeks, you might know that we've been going through the Apostle Paul's letter to the Ephesians on Sunday mornings. And so we've been doing that kind of a, a section of verses at a time. And Ephesians, we've said, um, is the whole letter, the book, the theme of it, I think, could be summarized by saying that life that is received from God... It necessarily leads to a transformed life with and before God. And this morning, we're picking up in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 13, um, which is printed in your bulletin if you want to go ahead and turn there. Um, But I'll tell you this before we read it. uh, All the commentators have a lot of fun with this passage because in the middle of a sentence in verse 1, Paul just kind of breaks off his thought for these 13 verses and doesn't come back again to it until verse 14. And so what's here can somewhat, in verses 2 through 13, can somewhat appear a little bit like Paul is rambling and it's not structured very well. Um, And we're not going to be able to look at every detail in this passage, but I think Paul is right on message um, here with what he's been talking about because he's talking about how this life from God necessarily leads to a transformed life with and before God. And he's talking in this passage, I think, about how our lives are really shaped by God's grace. Um, So let me read this passage for us, and then we'll pray, and then we'll talk our way through it. Um, Let's give our attention to God's holy and inerrant word. Ephesians chapter 3, beginning verse 1. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ And to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might be made might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's go before him now and ask for his help. Father, we do um, plead with you for your help, that you would pour out your spirit, that we might understand your word in order that it might be applied to our lives. Help us, we pray, as we look at this passage um, to see clearly and to see with eyes of faith um, your grace 
to us through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we do pray. Amen. So when I was in around, I think, the sixth grade, um, fifth or sixth grade, I got to go on a trip to see Mount Rushmore in South Dakota. And uh, I remember seeing those huge 60-foot faces carved into the side of that mountain, uh, Washington, Lincoln, Jefferson, Roosevelt, um, just incredible, impressive, uh, those carvings, just immediately recognizable and beautiful. Um, And the sculptor who did that work was a man named Gutzon Borglum, and it took him around 15 years uh, to sculpt uh, those faces into the side of the mountain. And one thing I didn't realize, though, until I saw a documentary on the making of Mount Rushmore, uh, was that 90% of the sculpting work uh, was done with dynamite. Um, The other 10% was just kind of detail work, cleaning things up. Um, And there's some incredible footage in some of these these documentaries uh, about the making of of that mountain, of Mount Rushmore, and these men who would rappel down the face of this huge granite mountain and they would drill deep into the rock um, and then they would set the dynamite and when they set the dynamite off of course tons of rock would come tumbling down the face of this mountain and when uh, the smoke and the dust would clear you would see this you know these faces begin to Uh, take shape, you know, a cheekbone, a forehead, a chin, whatever would start to come into focus. Um, Listen, for Paul, the gospel of God's grace through Jesus, it it is dynamite, right? In verse 7, Paul mentioned uh, the gift of God's grace, which was given to him by the working, he says, of God's power, And the Greek word for power there is the word dunamai, where we get our word dynamite. The same word Paul used in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, when he said, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the dunamai, the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. You see, for Paul, the gospel of God's grace, he's saying it's not about power. This gospel is power itself. See, when you think about, when I think about my life, um, you think about yours, it's not guilt or shame, which is, which is what we often use to try to affect change in our lives or in the lives of others around us. You know what I mean? We, we start thinking, if I could just feel bad enough, If I could just feel sorry enough, if I could just feel ashamed enough, awful enough, well, then maybe I would never do that thing again, uh, whatever it is. And maybe it does lead sometimes to some temporary change of behavior, but it really never seems to last. um, Because according to Paul, according to the Bible, it's the grace of the gospel that if it gets drilled down into your heart, That's what has the power to crack and reshape even the hardest hearts among us. 
So as we think this morning um, about being changed and being shaped by, the, by God's grace, I, I want us to talk about three things from this passage. I want us to talk about the wonder of grace, and then I want us to talk about the calling of grace, and then finally I want us to talk about the purpose of grace. Okay, The wonder, the calling, the purpose of grace. First, the wonder of grace. Here, here's the deal. We are always shaped by whatever captures and captivates the wonder of our hearts. I wish I had more time for this, but, but just think with me for a moment. Whatever we are most captivated by, we are shaped by. So if it's the approval of others that really captivates our hearts, or if it's being a success in your career, or if it's... Um, Achieving some level of comfort or security in this life. Um, If that's what has most captivated the wonder of your heart, if that to you is ultimate beauty, if I could just have that, if I could just achieve that, get that, it's going to shape us. It's going to shape everything about our lives. Right? Often we find ourselves surprised by ourselves. We think, I never thought I would lie like that. You know, I I never thought I would compromise my standards in that way or cheat like that in life. But it's really not that surprising, is it? I mean, if the wonder of your heart is most captivated by what people think of you, or how high you can climb the ladder in your career, or your material security or comfort in this life, that is going to shape you into a people pleaser, into somebody that works way too much to the detriment of all kinds of other things in your life. Um, and you'll make moral and ethical compromises you'd, you never thought you would make. It's going to shape you. And Paul is saying, for your life, to be transformed inside and out, for your life to be radically reshaped, your heart must be captivated by the wonder of God's grace. Throughout this passage, Paul uses the word mystery. You you see it four times. It's in verse 3, it's in verse 4, it's in verse 6, it's in verse 9. And in the Bible... Mystery, it doesn't mean something that's hidden and you need to go about discovering it. In the Bible, a mystery is something that has been revealed to us. Something that has been displayed by God because you would have never discovered it on your own. Right? It's too amazing. It's, it's just too counterintuitive. It's so upside down to the way things normally work. You, you would have never discovered it. And that's why Paul wrote in verse 3 that this mystery was made known to him by what? By revelation. He called this mystery in verse 4 the mystery of Christ. And then in verse 6, this mystery, he says, put the religious Jews and the pagan Gentiles on equal footing. They were both made partakers of the promise of Christ. And then in verse 9, he wrote the mystery... It was once hidden, 
right, has been brought into the light. I know I'm jumping around a little bit here, but in verse 3, Paul wrote that he had already written of this mystery briefly. And what he's saying is he's saying that that's basically what chapters 1 and 2 were about. And if we had to summarize what chapters 1 and 2 were about in one word, that word would have to be grace. Right? Ephesians 1.5, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will to the praise of what? His glorious grace. Ephesians 2 verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing, it is the gift of of God. You know why the law in the Bible is never referred to as a mystery? It's because the law already appeals to our common sense. Right? That we should be this, or we should be that, or that we've fallen short of it. And every time you and I use guilt and use shame, to try to affect change in our lives. It's just us trying to use the law to change us. And the law can't change you. But Paul is saying when this wondrous mystery of God's grace gets drilled into and dropped into your heart, when you wake up to this astounding, astounding mystery of grace, it's going to reshape you. There are a lot of good definitions of grace out there, uh, but a very brief definition that I heard someone mention several weeks ago, um, just kind of been sticking around with me, um, was this person said, grace is one-way love. I think that's a good, simple definition. I mean, we could add to it. But grace is one-way love. It's God's love moving towards you by no other cause than his love for you. Excuse me. God loves you just because he loves you. And so he moved towards you in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Jesus came and everything he did, he did for you. He came and he died the death you should have died. He came and for you he lived the perfectly righteous life you could not live on your own. He did it all for you. Grace is one-way love. And if God's love for you, if it didn't originate in you, if the cause of it didn't originate in you, then there can never be anything in you that would cause him to stop loving you. You really are that free. And it's when the wonder of this grace dawns on you and captivates your heart as ultimate beauty that the king of kings could love you like that. When that gets a hold of your heart, you better hold on because it's going to reshape everything about your life. You're always shaped by the thing that fills you with wonder. This illustration, I know it pales in comparison. It's just an incredibly dim hint. But I can tell you the day I realized I loved my future wife, Jennifer. We were dating at the time, and we had plans to get together. She was going to come over to my house, and we were going to 
cook dinner and, and watch a movie together. And uh, so I was on my way home to get everything ready. So I was driving down I-55 south of uh, Jackson, Mississippi, and I pulled over on the side of the interstate, and I got out of my car. Um, and cars were whizzing by me, and they were honking at me. But Jennifer had one time mentioned to me that her favorite flower was buttercups. And so I saw this, these bunch of buttercups. So I pulled over, stopped, got out of my car, and started picking flowers on the side of the interstate. If you know me, I'm not really a flower-picking kind of guy. <laughs> but this is my point. Beauty changed me. Wonder changed me. Right? I was captivated by her. And so it started to shape me into a different person. And that's the day I knew I loved her because I wasn't picking flowers to be cool. I mean, all the cars honking at me told me that. Um, I could figure that out. And I wasn't trying to impress her or win her over. I mean, she was already coming over to my house, right? I had been changed. And I was simply doing it because I loved her. And that was it. So let me just we'll go get the second point here. But when's the last time you did something? Or stopped doing something? Just because you love Jesus. The key to a reshaped life is being captivated by the wonder of God's grace to you in Jesus. All right, second, let's talk about the calling of grace. Here's what I want to say. God's grace always calls us to move out in his grace to minister to others and bring healing into the world. It always does that. 18th century Scottish preacher Ralph Erskine wrote, A rigid matter was the law, demanding brick, denying straw. That imagery comes from people of Israel enslaved under Pharaoh in Egypt. So a rigid matter was the law, demanding brick, denying straw. But when with gospel tongue it sings, it bids me fly and it gives me wings. Right? The gospel of grace calls you to fly and it gives you what you need to fly. It enables and empowers you to do what it's calling you to. Listen, Christianity is most definitely not a religion of works. Um, That would run counter to everything we just said about God's grace and about his one-way love towards his people. But as one author writes, Christianity is very much a religion of action. Right? Right? If we put it another way, the mystery of Christ, this wonder of grace, it pulls you in and it heals you, but it also always reshapes you and sends you back out to bring healing to the world. And I want to I challenge you to think about things a little differently because I, I think that's what Paul's doing in, this, in these verses. See, I want you to think about this. This calling to ministry of you moving out to serve others in word, in deed. It is not your gift to God. It is his gift to you. This calling of grace, it's not so much your gift to God, but it is his gift 
to you. Paul wrote in verse 2 that the stewardship of God's grace was given to me for you. Right? In verse 7, he wrote that he was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace. In verse 8, he wrote, this grace was given to him to preach about the unsearchable riches of Christ. See, for Paul, when the dynamite of God's grace goes off in your heart, you will realize that the calling to minister to others in his name is his gift to you. His gift to you to call you to express your heart's greatest delight in word and deed to others. And I don't think anybody has put this as well um, as, as C.S. Lewis in his short book on the, on the Psalms. And I went back this week and I reread this chapter he has in that book on praising. And in that chapter, Lewis was saying that he struggled for a time with the way God demanded in Scripture and even commanded his own praise. Um, it, so he had this picture of God saying something like, these aren't Lewis's words, but basically saying, go ahead, tell me how awesome I am. Tell me again, tell me more, right? And he's making this point that we all kind of hate being around that person uh, that just needs constant affirmation. Uh, but Lewis wrote that he got over this difficulty when he noted, this quote, quote, when he noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise. That when you enjoy something and delight in something, that it naturally, it, it's got to get out of you. It's got to get expressed, right? And so he says, and he noticed that just as men spontaneously praise what they value, so they also spontaneously urge others to join in praising it. By saying things like, isn't she amazing? Right? Wasn't it glorious? Don't you think that's magnificent? So Lewis wrote, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses, but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. It's not out of compliment that lovers on Valentine's Day this past week, keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete until it is expressed. It is frustrating to have discovered a new author and not be able to tell anyone how good he is, to come suddenly at the turn of the road upon some mountain valley of unexpected grandeur and then have to keep silent because the people with you care for it no more than for a tin can in the ditch. Or, or, or the way we feel compelled to tell our friends about the latest, greatest TV show we found on Netflix or the podcast. We've just got to tell somebody about it or the restaurant or the singer we discovered or whatever. It's more than just expressing praise. Pulling others into our joy, right? That's what truly completes the enjoyment. The gospel of grace calls us to move out to share this good news of God's one-way love, his grace, in word and deed, and that is his gift to us, that we would pull others into the beauty to complete our delight. Because pulling others into our beauty never diminishes our joy, but only increases our joy. 
Now, let me just very briefly pull on one little thread of application here, and, um, and I'll ask you to think it out on your own. Um, but, but listen, if you believe this good news of God's grace, but in your life you're feeling so, so very stagnant, like you're stalled out in life, just lacking a vision for reaching out to your neighbors and to your friends and to your coworkers in this community in Baton Rouge. It could be that you haven't been leaning into this calling of grace. And that could be for a number of reasons. But, but listen, muscles not used atrophy. They wither. Right? God's grace always pulls you in to heal you. But it also always calls you out to move out into the world to bring healing into the world. And if you're not exercising that, if, if you're not leaning into this gift of God, then those muscles are going to atrophy. You're going to feel stagnant and stalled out. Okay, so think more about that. And let's get to the last point. Last point. Let's talk about the purpose of grace. It's a little hard to ask you to do this in, in this point, but um, I'm going to try to be brief. But I need you to think through what Paul says here about the purpose of grace. And, and to see it, we've got to jump around just a little bit. So let me do this real quick, and then we'll, we'll apply it, okay? In verses 10 and 11, Paul wrote that God's intent was that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places he says, this was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So through the church, God is going to make known his wisdom according to the purpose accomplished in Jesus. So the question is, what is that purpose? Ephesians is a letter. And so it's a little challenging to come in here week after week, and just take one small chunk of that letter, because letters, if you get a letter in the mail, you read through it in one sitting, and that's how Ephesians was written. Um, and so if you were, were to read through Ephesians like that, you would realize that when Paul starts talking about the purpose of grace here, he's referencing something he already told us, which came in chapter 1, verses 9 through 10. Just, if you don't have a Bible, just listen to how similar the languages, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. And now he comes to the purpose as a plan for the fullness of time to unite, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. The purpose of grace is to unite all things in Jesus, to fix everything that is wrong with the world in Jesus, to mend all the brokenness of this world in Jesus, to wipe away every tear, to heal every fracture, to make this world and you what it and you were meant to be. And yes, there is a future day when all of that will come true fully and finally when Jesus returns for his bride, the church. But Paul is saying 
That work has begun now. And it is through the church that God is now at work making all things new and uniting all things in Jesus. For Christmas this past year, one of my kids, um, knowing I like puzzles, got me a jigsaw puzzle. Um, Thank you, Kennedy. Um, I loved it. I I love puzzles. So I got the puzzle, opened it up Christmas Day, dumped all the pieces out on the dining room table, spread them all out, and together we worked on that puzzle a little bit at a time for about a week. You know, I'd pass by the dining room table and I'd sit down for a few minutes and I'd kind of work on this section and my Kids would pass by, and they, we would sit down together for a few minutes at a time, and we were working on this, pe- this section or whatever. And eventually, we put the whole thing together, right? And what enabled us to keep coming back and working on it, bit by bit, until it was done, was the completed picture on the front of the box. Right? Every time you put a puzzle together, you dump it all out, and then you set up that the front of the box so you can reference that picture. I mean, because it was that picture that was constantly giving us direction, right? Uh, Now we're working on the sky, and this looks like it fits over here, and you work on this or whatever. But there was also something, and it's not just direction, there was also something about seeing the completed picture there that was pulling us forward to finish it. To bring that picture into reality, right? Listen, all the biblical commentators that you read on Ephesians, they wrestle with what a unique letter Ephesians is. Um, Because think about this. Paul spent three years of his life in Ephesus ministering to these people. And yet if you read through Ephesians, it lacks any of the personal remarks which are so common in all of his other letters, even to places he had never been, like Rome. And and you add to that the fact that this letter, it's densely full of practical application. We're getting there. Chapters 4 through 6, they are packed with all kinds of practical application. And yet, there doesn't seem to be any particular problem that Paul is confronting or correcting or addressing in the Ephesian church, which is really a common feature in all his books, if you read them, all his letters. See, it's a very general letter in some sense, and it's also an incredibly lofty letter. You know what he's doing? Paul, throughout Ephesians, is giving us his treatise on the church, And he's grounding it in all of this rich theology. And he's lifting up before us this idealized picture of what the church ought to be. That life received from God necessarily leads to this transformed life with and before God, which gets lived out in the church. And he's giving us this complete picture of the the church rooted and established before the foundation of the world, chapter 1. He's telling us what God has intended the church to be and what God is shaping the church into. And he doesn't give us that picture to shame us. You ought to be better. You ought to be doing better. That's not what he's doing. 
through the completed picture, he is giving us direction. This is what you ought to be doing. This is how you should be doing that. Right? This is, this is how you should be living this out. And through this picture, he's pulling us forward to be ushering in this new heavens and this new earth into reality. This is what we ought to be. This is what we get to live into. So let me end with just two little applications here. One, this idealized, completed picture is actually what you need to face the harsh, hard, broken reality of this world with hope. See, I think it might be natural for us to say, this grand picture is fine and great and everything, but you know what? Tomorrow is Monday. And back to the real world with all of its challenges, with all of its hardness and all of its troubles. Or even that's fine now, but I've got to go home and finish that hard conversation with my roommate. Or I've got to go back home and I've got to finish the argument that my spouse and I started on the way to church. Uh, we've got to finish that on the way home. And it's hard and life is broken and all of that kind of stuff. And I get it. And Paul gets it. Believe me, Paul gets it. Paul wrote this letter from a prison cell. He mentions it in verse 1 and verse 3, referring to his imprisonment and his current suffering in life. He's writing this letter chained to a Roman guard for preaching the gospel. We're going we're gonna to flesh this out more in weeks to come. I'm kind of setting us up for it, but... There's nothing we need more in the midst of life's brokenness than this. That in the midst of life where where we feel very often that things are not being pulled together by Jesus. That's what it feels like. It it doesn't feel like my life's being all pulled together or my family or my work or, or whatever. Or my friendships. Or the church, it doesn't feel united in Jesus. But we need this real hope that the purpose of grace, he is telling us, is to unite all things in Jesus. And it's this hope that keeps pulling us forward. It's this hope that keeps giving us direction that says keep on going because this is, in fact, what Jesus is doing. Even when in your life it doesn't feel like he's doing that. It's huge to know that. All right, second and last little application, which is really an encouragement to see what's unseen. In verse 10... Paul wrote that this drama of the purpose of grace to unite all things in Christ through the church, he, he tells us it's being played out in front of an unseen audience. Right? It's being played out, he tells us, before the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. There's this fascinating place in, uh, in 1 Peter chapter 1, which is kind of funny to me the way it kind of rolls off of Peter's pen because it's almost like a throwaway statement for him that comes at the very end of a paragraph that he's writing where Peter says this whole gospel mystery thing that we're talking about whereby we're united to Jesus and and therefore we're united to one another where God is at work in that paragraph he's telling us that God is at work refining us even by fire as he's uniting all things in Christ and then Peter says at the end of the paragraph he says You know, even the angels long to look into these things. The rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. 
They long to look into these things. And the word that's used there by Peter for longing is actually the Greek word that most often in the New Testament gets translated lust. Epithumia, I think, is the word. He's saying it is with burning, passionate, jealous desire that even the angels, they are craning their necks to peer into this wonder of grace that is reshaping us and the world. It's as we work towards our unity with all kinds of people, all kinds of different people, because in Jesus the dividing wall of hostility has been demolished, which is what we talked about last week at the end of chapter 2. It's as the wonder of grace wakes us up and reshapes the loves of our lives, it's as we embrace the gift of this calling of grace to move out into the world to bring healing and hope into the world, It's as we live out the purpose of grace through the church to see all things united in Christ that even the angels, they are craning their necks. They can't wait to see it all unfold as they are peering into this wondrous mystery of God's grace that is worked out and in and through our lives together. And listen, if this is the wonder that captivates the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places, shouldn't this be the wonder that captivates our hearts and reshapes and changes us? Let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, we give you praise and thanks for your word again this morning. Father, we thank you for speaking to us, We thank you for shining upon us and revealing to us the wonder of your grace in Jesus. Father, it is our longing and our hope that we would be reshaped by this wonder, that it would come into our lives and that it would reorder all the loves of our lives that it would pull us in and heal us and send us out into the world, that it would build, even here at South Baton Rouge, Presbyterian Church, a unique church, as we link arms with one another, as we see all of this stuff begin to be fleshed out, that you are at work right now, even when we don't feel it, even when it's hard for us to see, that you are at work right now uniting all things in Jesus. Father, fill our hearts with this wonder and change us. For Jesus' sake, amen.